0: This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. I'm Christine Agapakis, and in my previous episodes for Transistor, we got into all things microbial. In this episode, I want to start off with a very different microscopic process, specifically how the egg and sperm meet. Uh, come on, me. I know where I'm going. Come on. I've got the map. Okay, That's on. Look Who's Talking from 1989, with Bruce Willis voicing the lead sperm as it charges hero-like into the uterus and up the fallopian tubes. Yeah, this
1: is it. This is definitely it. This is the place. Come on. Oh! It's never been jackpot! Never um, it was a mission. It was a, a journey. It was a voyage. It was all active, and it was positive action.
0: Ah. Emily Martin is an anthropologist at NYU, She says that sperm always get the most powerful and most fun roles. Whereas the egg
1: was just kind of floating there like a planet and and just waiting, hopefully, to be kind of rescued by one of these valiant sperm.
0: For movies to textbooks, sperm are always described as little men, eggs as little women, and fertilization, it's a romantic courtship. That's the popular narrative. But back in the 80s, Emily wondered... What if it's completely wrong? What if these gender stereotypes get in the way of the science? When PRX asked me to host this podcast, I had to think of a way to squeeze all of the different things that I'm interested in into these little episodes. I realized that what I'm usually thinking about is about three parts microbes and one part feminism. In college, in a sociology of gender class, I read Emily's article, The Egg and the Sperm, and it helped me to start to see the connection between being a feminist and being a scientist. So I was really thrilled to be able to interview Emily and her husband, the biophysicist Richard Cohn. They're both in their 70s and have been married for a long time. We met in a small studio in New York in late December, just before the holidays. Having
1: houseguests in the form of our daughter, son-in-law and granddaughter, who's one, Her name is Winona.
0: (laughs) She's very, very, very cute. Emily started her career doing fieldwork in China in the 70s. But she came back to the U.S. in the 80s and turned her anthropological focus on the way that scientists talk about human reproduction, in part because of her own pregnancy.
1: Because the language of pregnancy and of all women's reproductive activities was so startlingly gendered and stereotypical and often rather denigrating of women's bodies and women's bodily processes.
0: Part of that was studying Richard's lab at Johns Hopkins.
1: And my work for the last 30 years has been
2: on trying to develop better methods to protect against sperm and germs.
0: Emily says she just started by asking questions about fertilization. Why do you
1: assume that the sperm drills into the egg? Is there really evidence for that? Uh, why do you assume that the egg has no role whatsoever to play in being fertilized? See there, I'm using a passive phrase right there. Why doesn't the egg have a role to play in the coming together of the egg and the sperm?
2: Emily tuned me in to the importance of words and metaphors and the importance of getting those terms correct.
0: Once Richard stopped assuming he knew how the sperm moved, he was able to ask different questions too.
1: You just asked this question. Very basic question that apparently had never, ever been asked before, which is, what is the force of the forward thrust of the sperm? Since they're yeah. depicted in language as missiles. Or, or, or torpedoes. Or torpedoes. Yeah. So what was the yeah. forward thrust? And, and it,
2: was, it was embarrassingly small. <laughs> <laughs> they can move forward just barely.
0: And that was just the beginning.
2: They don't head towards the egg. In fact, they try to get away from the egg. That's the first thing they do is they try to turn around and keep swimming.
0: Not so fast sperm. Contractions in the uterus pull the sperm up into the vagina and the fallopian tubes take it from there. And when the sperm gets to the egg, the outer coating, called the zona pellucida, acts like flypaper.
2: And that process makes them like, um, well, I think we put it in the paper, Br'er rabbit. As, as Br'er rabbit wiggles more uh, it gets more stuck in the tar and as the sperm attempt to get away in fact they uh, plaster themselves against the egg
0: and even then the next move comes from the egg
2: so when the sperm reaches there it touches the egg then the egg reaches around and engulfs the sperm that would be a nicer way of saying it and then transports the sperm head all the way to the egg's nucleus so all of that transport is done by the egg very active role all the way through
0: We're so used to imagining sperm as brave male adventurers, piercing a passive and female egg, it can be really difficult to think about the egg in a much more active role. How could the textbooks have gotten it wrong for so long? Emily Martin's paper rattled me when I first read it in college. I'd been trained to think like a scientist and to believe that science was purely rational and that it was able to correct mistakes because it could look at things critically and objectively. Emily's paper made me realize that science doesn't correct itself because scientists are smarter or purer than other people. To correct cultural bias in science, we need a change in culture first.
1: It's such a powerful producer of facts and of things that we run our lives by. And yet, it's very persuasive that it isn't simply a neutral, objective finder of facts, but rather as imbued in cultural ideas as any other human activity.
0: The belief that science is a neutral, objective finder of facts is still prevalent, both inside and outside of science. But it's becoming increasingly hard to ignore all the ways that science and technology aren't special and aren't separate from the biases we see in popular culture. That's because of work of scholars like Emily, and especially as more women and minorities speak up about their experiences as scientists. To combat blind spots, you have to shine a light on them, making them visible and part of the conversation. But the problem with sexism is it's bigger than just what happens in the lab. Richard started his career as a biophysicist in the late 60s, studying rods and cones in the eye. But a decade later, after he had the safety net of tenure at Johns Hopkins, he became interested in studying spermicides and microbicides. Even knowing how many women were getting STDs and having unwanted pregnancies, he says that it was a black hole for funding. He has a sort of joke that he tells a lot about this.
2: And it wasn't until 1992, that the NIH uh, discovered the vagina.
0: That's because in 1992, two women were promoted to top positions at the National Institutes of Health for the first time. And that's when Richard got his funding.
2: For me, the bottom line there is we explore those things that interest us. We try to answer questions that we have. And if we're not interested in studying something down there, well, then we don't study down there. And most of the research I do in my lab today Could have been done a hundred years ago, but nobody was doing it.
0: Part of scientists thinking that we're objective, rational, and self-correcting means that we tend to resist critique from outsiders, and especially critique that comes from cultural or subjective grounds.
1: With the single exception of Richard's research, and we are married, so I had really unusual access and unusual you know, confidence that I might be saying something worthwhile. Um, I haven't held out any hope that anything I might say or do would affect the science involved, and I don't think it has.
0: But Emily Martin has really influenced me and a lot of others, including Kate Clancy, a biological anthropologist at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign.
3: So you basically talk to one of my greatest idols in the field Uh, If you talk to Emily Martin, I just adore her work. She's so wonderful. Kate's more than 30 years younger than Emily,
0: and in some ways her career is a result of what Emily Martin pioneered. Kate is a feminist biologist.
3: What it is for me is an orientation or a way in which I sort of start to ask my questions. And so I might take an assumption that seems to be held, like you need to have a 28-day cycle, and that's considered normal, and falling outside that norm requires regulation. You know, from there, I then say, well, where is that assumption coming from? And can we actually interrogate that using the scientific method? Kate's research is on human
0: evolution and how the female body works, specifically the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. But Kate also thinks and writes a lot about women's careers in the sciences and
3: the ways that they get thwarted. Sometimes it's just garden variety sexism. Um, I mean, just speaking completely frankly, I've had a couple of experiences in my career where, you know, I had a lot of zeal around some particular question around, you know, women's reproductive physiology You know, super excited about it and thought it was so interesting. And then when I would go to my colleagues and, and mentors, maybe they were sometimes um, disparaging or thought that it was kind of gross. And the way that academia works, not getting funding can really set your career back. Unfortunately, that's a really tricky dance because on the one hand, you've got people telling you what you're doing isn't worthwhile and you should have a plan B because your plan A doesn't actually sound all that interesting or useful. And so then you have to find a way to go do that research anyway, publish on it, and then everyone's going to say, oh, right, there's that great work that Kate Clancy does that we're so glad she does. And you know we should give her some money so she can keep doing that work.
0: A lot of academia is still patriarchal and often very hierarchical. Many labs are run as little fiefdoms with a head boss and less powerful underlings who feel like they can't speak up about the problems that they see in science or in the lab. That can be a factor in some of Kate's other research into sexual harassment. Kate was the lead author on a study last year about sexual harassment and assault during scientific fieldwork. Of the more than 650 academics who were surveyed, more than 60% said they'd been sexually harassed on the job. One in five had been sexually assaulted. When it happened to men, it was often done by peers. When
3: it happened to women, it was often done by superiors. There's been research to suggest that when the origin of that hostile workplace is coming from someone senior to you in the hierarchy, it's a lot worse for your productivity, for your job satisfaction, you're more likely to leave that job. Kate
0: says her findings aren't all that
3: different from the level of sexual harassment in other fields. But we all wanted to believe that we were better. uh, And, you know, we had to learn that we aren't. We're not worse, but we aren't better.
0: Improving diversity in science is much bigger than getting young women and minorities interested in science. You have to change science itself. For Emily Martin, that's partly about shifting the narrative— it it just seems for sure
1: that would have that effect. If you feel your female and the female characters in your biology textbooks are ineffectual and passive and waiting to be saved, it doesn't make you want to study that. If that's how things are, uh, but then if somebody points out that that's not how they are, that's how they're described, then you can maybe get even more excited about learning ways to describe them another way.
0: Richard Cohn says he's seen a shift in his own lab. And who's interested in doing this kind of research?
2: Lots of times the girls come in really wanting to study this area and go into it. But I also find the males are also much more uh, open to this. And they like it and think it's important. And will it be important for,
0: you know,
2: human welfare and health? It, it's, that's, it's moving.
0: Things are changing. I think that we're recognizing that culture is part of science. But I agree with Emily that there's a lot more work that needs to be done.
1: The challenge is extremely deep. It is not just that the wrong words are used, which is true. It's that the pretense, the historical belief has been that science is set apart from all other human activities, as you are well aware, in that it finds out the truth about the world.
0: And that concept of truth— It's pretty philosophical when you think about it. It's not just about sexism here. Science might be sexist sometimes because of the separation between science and culture, because we have an idea of science on one side and emotion and subjectivity on the other, and because we have an idea of masculine on one side and feminine on the other.
1: Richard and I have had many um, fights about this, and we have agreed in order to keep the marriage <laughs> intact, that we won't argue about whether or not there are true things apart from history and culture. Th-
2: that there's an objective truth we, to we what just, we're talking we about. We just
1: won't argue yeah. that point because he thinks there is, and I don't, I don't. I, th- I think about it differently.
0: This is a conversation that my husband and I have had, too. He's an anthropologist, and I'm a biologist. I really appreciate that when I come home after a long day of work, He's always willing to say, that's an interesting way to describe that or ask me, why do you use that word? I appreciate this perspective and it's made me a better scientist because being a good scientist means controlling not just for the many technical variables that we can have in the lab. It's also being aware of our cultural variables and doing our best to control for those with open critical minds and working with diverse communities of scientists. Thanks for listening to this episode and all of the episodes of Transistor. I'm Christina Agapatkis. The Transistor Podcast Series is brought to you by PRX. Subscribe to more episodes on iTunes and visit our website, transistor.prx.org, for more information, including links to articles by Emily Martin, Richard Cohn, and Kate Clancy. This episode was produced by Carrie Donahue, Shruti Pinamanani, and mixed by David Herman. The Transistor team includes PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth, Content Coordinator Genevieve Sponsler, and Lily Bowie. This episode was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org.